1: A business partner is like a marriage partner. We just, you know, locked arms and and made it happen. And when you take my corporate background with his sort of entrepreneurial, because that's what it took to get to America, and we added it together, it just became like magic for us.
2: You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode, Making the Perfect Partner. I'm Christine Legorio-Chavkin, Senior Writer at Inc. Magazine, here with my producer, Josh Christensen. So, Josh... Would you say I'm a good podcast partner?
0: Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're the perfect partner. You're a great podcast partner.
2: You're not so bad yourself. <laughs> no, you are you are the best producer and the best partner I could ask for in this. And you know, I mean, I obviously couldn't make this podcast without you.
0: And vice versa.
2: I mean, there are there are very few things in this world that someone can accomplish entirely on their own. And In the world of business, that's even more true. Having great partners is essential, and that's a lesson our guest learned early in her career. She's co-founder and CEO of Lafayette 148, Deirdre Quinn.
0: And it was finding that special partnership that launched her company when, in 1996, Shun Yen Su asked Deirdre to go into business with him and his wife, Ida Su.
2: And that's when Lafayette 148 began but Deirdre's career in fashion may have been seeded many years prior. Deirdre told me that after her first lesson on a singer sewing machine, back when she was a little kid, she became obsessed. She'd go on to study fashion design in college and then get her first job at Liz Claiborne. But back in the 80s, it wasn't so easy for her to get ahead.
1: It was back when production was a man's world and we should get the coffee and, you know, just I remember my boss, one of my bosses telling me to hurry up and train the new guy to become the vice president. And, you know, six years into that, I I really was like, what about me? And although I never asked it, and that's a lesson that people should learn from, it's better to speak up than what I did was I resigned. Um, And I went to Donna Karen when DKNY launched, which turned out to be awesome because Donna was extremely different than Liz back in this was in the 90s now or late 80s sorry you know it was all about fashion it was all about product it was all about just a huge passion where Liz was much more of a merchandised company much more of a a a product driven instead of design driven. And both companies were extremely successful back then. So I feel like I got to learn the left brain and the right brain in the fashion business. And then two years into it, Liz finally said, okay, you could be the vice president of production. So I do believe that leaving was a blessing for me. And I went back um, to, you know, the the same group of people and was really nervous. I was in my 30s uh actually i was in my late 20s when that happened and i stayed for four more years and the company had grown there it was it was incredible and i i was i was really happy about it um and and pretty much throughout my career every boss i ever had asked me to leave with them. And I never left, except for that one time, uh, until now we're 10 years into Liz. So it was six years, two years at Donna, former years at Liz. And one of my bosses convinced me to go and it was an opportunity to really expand. So I ended up moving to Hong Kong and working for Italians and Germans. And that was the most amazing experience ever. So I was there for two years and I sort of, you know, it's it's a different world. You're like become an expat. You're living on the other side of the world. I missed my family. I sort of, I didn't realize that it would be such a different lifestyle for the rest of my life. I decided, no, I'm going to come back. But I'm not sure if I'm going to stay in the fashion business. I I didn't want to go to 7th Avenue. I didn't want to go back to a big company. I didn't want to go back to a fashion company. I really didn't want to run around the world the way that I was. Um, I had traveled to 70 countries for manufacturing, which is just a huge amount of factories to see and problems to solve and logistics to figure out. And I didn't do it alone I mean there was huge departments behind it but um, I kind of got too far away from um, let's say more of the hands-on entrepreneurial spirit that I guess I've always had so this lovely couple that made clothes on Lafayette Street in Lower Manhattan asked me if uh, I wanted to start a business with them and all I kept thinking is oh my god we can make all the clothes right here in the building so count me in and they gave me a desk and a phone and um, um, we had a million dollars, and shoot, within the first year we ran out of a million dollars, and <laughs> with that was tough. That was wait, really where,
2: tough. Wait, where did the million dollars come from?
1: Um, my business partner, uh, the he was a jacket factory in Chinatown, because back then Lafayette Street was Chinatown. Yeah, over time it turned into Soho. But, this was what nineteen
2: ninety five, ninety six.
1: Yep. It was 1996. Uh-huh. And it was just an incredible memory now of, you know, what was going on in that part of, of Manhattan. Um, he, you know, he also had manufactured clothes for everybody from back then, Ellen Tracy, Ann Klein, Donna Karen. you know, he was one of my suppliers. Um, but, you know, he, he, he lasted longer than others as the industry sort of moved away Because of his location, you know, they always say location, location, location. And in that case, Lower Manhattan, you know, it was the factory that could turn quick. It could make whatever needed to be made um, fast. But the problem is you couldn't make money because it was expensive. You know, uh, um, we couldn't be competitive at the zone that we were in. And so we and we also opened a lot of retail stores. We opened five retail stores in our first year without a brand.
2: Wow. Wow
1: really tough lesson wow how do you you
2: even do that without a brand
1: yeah you know what we got advice from someone that said that you should be so vertical not alone are you going to manufacture all the clothes you can even sell them direct to consumer this was before the website so we were like okay honestly within three or four months we knew we had to close the stores that was how quickly we had to learn and that's why you know the million actually believe it or not turned into 10 million and we lost 10 we invested you could say but i say we lost 10 million dollars and then it became how do you survive so what was also going on at that time it was five years into the company 9 11 came and you know, we're in lower Manhattan, you're watching the buildings fall down, everybody's pulling their work out of, you know, out of the factories. It was, it was a really tough time uh, to, to run a business in New York City in lower Manhattan. So he went back to his hometown for the holidays and called me up and told me we're going to move the factory back to where he was born. And him and his wife had been born in China. They lived in America for 40 years. They raised their children. They were American citizens. But he sac- they both, it's Mr. and Mrs. Sue, sacrificed their dreams in order to save the company. And they flew me over there for one night to see the factory by May of 2002. And... I'll never forget it, because I walked in, and there was three sewers, a cutter, and a presser. And he said to me, what do you think of the factory? And I'm thinking to myself, this is not a factory, All right? But I knew him, and I knew how, how smart he was, and how committed he was, and how, how much I could trust them and rely on them. So I said, what do you think? And he said, we're going to be just fine. And with that, they found a 10,000-square-foot space that turned into 20, that turned into 40. And we, we pretty quickly, we planned a, a three-year move from New York to uh, the production moving over to China, and we ended up achieving it within 18 months. Um, that immediately gave the company the ability to make a profit, which gave us the ability to invest in more product categories to do things that we could have never done before hand beading leather fur you know just so many different classifications we we set up a knit department we weren't making the knits back then and 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 so with the success of the company he ended up buying land, and we built a 240,000-square-foot manufacturing facility. Now, that's a dream come true for anyone that loves manufacturing as much as I do, and they did, because we could make everything for ourselves. Like, nobody in the industry does that, and I I think that's, that's probably the best part of the early years for me was I didn't have to run around the world anymore. I didn't have to compete with other companies that are in the factory that you're in and whose delivery is priority. And you know, what's your minimum, what's your lead time. It just became a compound of Lafayette. And we were able to build a very different type of, of mousetrap, if you want to call it. We didn't have minimums. We we could go quick. We could custom make orders. We can and we're still doing that today. We we don't manufacture for other people. Um, we really believe that if everybody focuses on one brand and one product, we can be the best at it. And that's been that's been the direction from the day we started. So exciting stuff.
2: You've said that there's a fine line between success and failure. Can you talk about that? And and how, uh, did you see that line for the first time uh, at this at this point? And uh, like, how did you learn to stay on the right side of it?
1: I think that I'm an optimist by nature, and I, I know that you know optimism can only get you so far, but. I can assure you that passion for what you believe in, the, the ability to risk whatever you have to, to make sure that things work are, are, are what it took. And, and I don't always recommend that. I mean, I, I rode through every penny of my 401k, was willing to put my house up for sale. You know, things that I, I know um, uh, are not smart moves, but um, that's what it took for us to succeed. Wow. Uh, so just risk, risk it
2: all for what you believe in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, a lot of people wouldn't agree with that, but I can remember one day feeling really low and um, Mr. Sue said to me, you know, Dee, when we crossed the river, we sunk the ships and there's no turning back. And I was like, did you save a piece of wood we can hang on to? And he's like, start swimming. <laughs> and that's how I felt. And you just didn't stop.
2: Something that's super relevant to this moment in time today in 2020 is is the ability to make a decision in the middle of a crisis. Um, and I want to talk more about that in a moment. But at this, at the first juncture for you of of starting to make those decisions, and they, they kind of sound like baby steps, you know, in hindsight, but they were big decisions for your company at the moment. How did you approach those and how did you just say, OK, this is the step forward. This is what we are doing. Um, were you and were you the sort of business mind of the operation making those decisions at that moment?
1: You know, uh, uh, Mr. Sue was 20 years older than me. And I always said he was 20 or smarter than me because I do think that wisdom comes with age. And I really respected him. We never had a disagreement. You know, he would tell me what he was thinking. We would discuss it. And then we always, I, I you know, it, it, a business partner is like a marriage partner. You you know, you agree on it and you go, we just, you know, locked arms and, and made it happen. And, and all of those decisions were, you know, he always used to say, it's like a dragon boat and we're all rowing in the same direction.
2: That's amazing. And when looking for other business partners, when you would, um, when you would work with another blouse designer or, or blouse maker um, or fabric supplier, what, were you kind of using the same lens through which to view those, those partnerships? And is that, um, Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, so, so when we started Lafayette, we went to, we wanted to, we had to make a better product because we were competing with big companies. So we went right to Italy to the best suppliers that I had learned from working with the Italians and Germans, and and you know they they had upped my game as far as um, you know sort of the level of quality that you need to compete in in the fashion world. So we found the best white shirt factory or mill we still buy from the same supplier we still buy our beautiful um stretch wools from the same supplier for 24 years and times like you know t- times when you need something they're there for you you know i can pick up the phone and and say i you know i i, I need 10,000 uh, uh meters of white shirts because we got to run on white shirts and how quickly can you get it and three months could turn into a week so relationships and in all aspects of the business are are what we started with and what we continue with
2: tell me about the dynamic between yourself and mr sue were you ever did you ever find yourself digging in your heels when he said you know stay the course or uh, describe what what that kind of back and forth was like
1: Well, we had dinner every single night at a place called 70 Mott Street, which I don't even think it's there anymore. He ate the same food every night. He wore the same clothes every day. This guy was so focused that routine was everything to him. So I didn't really like fish but I wasn't given the choice. This was what was for dinner, you know? <laughs> and, and I guess somewhere along the line, you, 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 I did learn a discipline and a routine. He wasn't afraid to work hard and neither was I. And so the two of us or the three of us, cause she was, she is awesome and runs the factory. We just, it, it, it was just the most incredible partnership. And I do think that I had Many years of almost twenty years with him of of not working for some corporate CEO. I were I was partners with the practical CEO, and you know I was probably um, I was the front man. He never felt that his English was good enough. Nobody ever met him. Pretty much. All right. He would send me out and tell me what to do. And, you know, if he came to a meeting, which he rarely did, he wouldn't even say too much. He was a quiet strength. And I I tell you, it's I've never met anyone like that. I I think that Mr. and Mrs. Sue, you know, being um, immigrants... Okay, my parents being immigrants, I, I grew up with the respect for what it took to get to America and be, and sort of live your dream and your passion. So I had a corporate background and he was the entrepreneur and I learned, maybe I had a little bit of that spirit in me, but when you take my corporate background with his sort of entrepreneurial because that's what it took to get to America, and we added it together, We, it, it, we, it just became like magic for us. Um, from a business point of view, for example, 2008, when we had the that recession we knew we had to make a change because you know business got really tough so we both agreed to go into the direct to consumer business model and we decided it was going to be the catalog so we we went into the catalog business neither one of us had experience at it um he taught me to hire people with experience so you could learn faster and, um, you know, but he would he would sort of say, look, Dee, this is what we're going to do. And then, you know, I'll support you. You figure out how to get it done, you know. Um, and meanwhile, his wife, which was just the... I actually didn't know her as well until after he passed away. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2013, which was another very difficult time for me personally. I'm sorry, uh, you yeah. Know, here, yeah, I just i i we all loved him, he was our leader, he was yeah. it, and so I had eighteen months' notice um from the day he told me that he had cancer until he was gone and in those eighteen months, it was as good as a college a master's degree in how to really nail the entrepreneurship, how to, you know, he built confidence in me. One thing I've learned is that, you know, and I try to do it to my employees now, is to give them the confidence that you need in order to succeed.
2: We'll be right back after a quick break.
0: Visit Slack.com to get started. The way Deirdre talks about Mr. Sue, you can't help but envy the partnership they had. It encompasses so many layers. They were friends and confidants. He was her mentor and teacher, but he also trusted her to run the show.
2: Yes. It sounds like part of his role, too, was just making her feel extremely comfortable with all of the crazy risks they were taking, you know, when they lost $10 million and she, you know, risked her whole 401k on the business. Um, He said, you know, comforting things and told her, you know, hey, we've we've crossed that river. We've sunk the boats. Um, I, I think that was just amazing.
0: And so many entrepreneurs selves find themselves in that situation. You know, there's a point of no return when starting a business. That is the biggest hurdle that I'm sure so many of our listeners have faced themselves. And in terms of partnerships, it's... Not always easy to be in business with someone, but finding that relationship and learning how to be a great collaborator yourself is, is really a superpower for entrepreneurs.
2: Right. I feel like there's, there's something so important there to being a great collaborator yourself, right? You have to learn also how to, how to be part of that relationship.
0: And being a good collaborator, being a great partner is one of the few things in business you can control.
2: Right. And the partnership that Deirdre and Mr. Sue had seemed to permeate the culture of the entire company. In particular, it really seemed to be Deirdre's approach to entrepreneurship. She understands that a business is greater than any one person.
1: I don't believe that it's me, I believe that it's us. And, you know, if you can build a team, a dream team, you can have the dream. My head of design, Emily, Oh, she started here as a kid and she's been with the company 18 years and now she has it all. She is design director. It's her vision. It's her voice. It's her talent. And I get to, I get to support this incredible person. I think that's probably the best part of my job right now is, is sort of being almost the mentor to the next generation. And I still I, I, I still consider myself young. Okay, but the fashion business is even younger than me. So you must have young people that you can teach and mentor, just like Mr. Sue did for me.
2: Was there a moment when you started to think about yourself as an entrepreneur?
1: <laughs> yeah. Actually, I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur until I met somebody from E&Y. And she said she was listening to my story. This was years ago. And she said, oh, my God, you should you should apply for our Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Like your story is so entrepreneurial. And I was like, really? So I applied and we won. <laughs> and dad was like wow this is cool i have a plaque and i got it and, and so yes i think that was kind of a turning point for me i just <laughs> thought of myself as a hard-working person i i didn't really stop and think about anything but that
2: that's amazing you had to literally have the award on your shelf before <laughs> <laughs> considering yourself the best true story <laughs> Back in March, Deirdre, you said that in terms of fashion, spring was canceled. Now, this was before, you know, most people were realizing how affected the business world was going to be, especially the small business world by the coronavirus. How did you make that judgment so quickly and how did you respond to it as a company?
1: Well, I, I'll be honest that we saw it coming. You know, we have our own, we have 1,200 sewers in China and in the end of January, when Chinese New Year was over, everything was shut down. The stores were shut. The factory was shut. It was like, wow. Then Italy, the mills are shut. Nobody can leave Italy. Spain, where we do our shoes, shut. It was like you, you saw it coming. So the second that it it, it, it really got intense here it, by March 15th, and, and the retailers started to call and say, we have to cancel our spring orders, it, it, it was it was reality hit very quickly. And because we're so tight um, on our calendar, we were able to stop as much as we possibly could. We had to cut out the overtime in the factory. You know, and it's funny now the factory is running, but they don't have the work. So it's it's been a, f- a circle and a half for us already, and I hope the full circle is that the economy comes back, and then we have more work than we need. But I'm not thinking that's going to happen that quickly. So so what what we what we did was. You know, by, honestly, by March 17th, the the company was, nobody was really coming to the office. I had a few people in here and we went store by store and we basically took our hits. And while we're at it, we told them, you know, cut back what they want for June and July and cut back what they want for fall. But because I didn't want to be sitting on inventory that nobody wanted. So it's been painful. I could say that I see this year, our company will be half the size that it was last year. Um, And I don't think it's coming back the following year. It's a rebuild mode. So what I'm doing now, and I've honestly, I live across the street from the office. So I am allowed to walk across the street and come to work, especially because we're in the Navy yard and we are manufacturing uh, hospital gowns, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a minute. But while I'm here and I'm, pretty much by myself here i've taken the organizational chart and decided now is a good time to reorganize because it, it you know every company we're so busy sometimes we don't stop sit back and say what is the company of the future look like and so i've been able to do that and i've spoke to every single one of my direct reports as of today and told them what the new organization is going to be and you know i don't just dictate it i work with them we brainstorm you know mr sue always taught me Two heads are better than one. Three heads are better than two. So we're much more of a collaborative company. I would say I'm a CEO that likes to hear what other people have to say. I don't just – I always joke around and say there's 148 opinions in this company. Yes, I finally have to make the decision, but I I definitely like to listen first and and execute after I'm educated on what other people think is is maybe a better option idea than I had. Or, you know, maybe you're merging the two ideas together.
2: So in April, you teamed up with Cry at the Brooklyn Navy Yard to start producing thousands of personal protective gowns a day. Uh, Is it true that by the end of the month, you'll have some 300,000 reusable PPE gowns made?
1: Yes, um, but it's not just us and it's not just Cry. There's ah. other companies inside the Navy Yard. The Navy Yard is owned by the Economic Development Corporation. Yeah. So they got involved um, and they got you know, all the companies in the yard that are sewing and it didn't matter if they were making curtains or, or they were a dry cleaner that did alterations. Anybody who had a sewing machine and could sew, uh, is, has pitched in. So, you know, Cry Precision has the most sewers. We have a significant, uh, amount because our sample room is bigger than a small factory. Um, we all got together and they needed the patterns first. So we were the company that made the patterns. We digitized them. We sent them, uh, over to Cry try source the fabric Uh, very important to find the right fabric and find what's available um, that that met the requirements that are necessary and then he um, has electronic uh, laser cutting machines Uh, so he was able to cut for everybody in the yard and then each week or Th- every three days you return what you've made and you're given a new bundle and we just you know we've separated our sewers so that they're you know six feet apart and um, everybody wanted to help you know I, it was so beautiful to see you know how many people I mean even today I, I get calls from people well, I get two types of calls I get calls from people that say oh my god you're making gowns please we need gowns and I'm like I can't give them to you because I'm happy it's not my fabric I'm working through the Navy Yard so, you know the distribution is much more on a government level um, than on a personal level, where I think masks, you know we made masks we We also brought in uh, forty thousand masks, and we've donated them uh, to different hospitals around uh, the city from Manhattan. To- to Queens, to, to Brooklyn. And that's just our our way of giving back. Um, the Gowns is a collaboration with The Yard. And then uh, we also decided, I'm on the board of the Brooklyn Hospital Center, to um, give a promotion that anybody who, who buys something full price, 20% of those proceeds go directly to the Brooklyn uh, Hospital Center. And that goes through the end of April, and I am proud to say it is going to be a six-digit number. I just don't wow. have it yet.
2: And what is what does the company look like in terms of how many of your workers are working remotely right now um, versus in the Navy Yard currently? And how do you manage how do you manage that in this moment of uncertainty?
1: So we have 350 employees in the USA. I unfortunately had a furlough of 50% of my employees, one of the harder days of my life. I didn't want to have to do it. But unfortunately, if I don't, save the company nobody will have a job so that decision was made uh two weeks ago and out of the balance they are you know people are not supposed to come to work so the only ones that are here with me are my someone in charge of technology if there's a problem the sewers because they can come we don't let them drive i mean we don't let them take mass transit they are either they have a car and they drive to the yard or someone in their family brings them and picks them up um, we want them to be safe we can't you know with safety is number one for us other than that my cfo comes in because he you know he's helped me with the small business loan that um, is was critical to our survival and then um, my head of design who actually had the virus, she had a mild case of it, but that was like in the beginning. She had it in March. She is now back one, two days a week very cautiously because you know we're a business that can't be done from home we're, we're not a spreadsheet we're not a computer we're making art you know she she needs the fabric she needs she needs to to work with the knits she needs she needs it's a hands-on business and i think that's the hardest part our business model is is a consumer driven you know a design that it, it, you just can't sit at home and do it. Now, we figured out how her design team is sketching from home, doing research from home, but it's it's probably one of the hardest things that we've ever had to do. To work on how to open a collection for the early June without being in the office, it's, it's, it's really hard to do. But the spirit's there, so we, we it'll be a new way. We, we don't even believe people will come to Brooklyn to see the collection in June. So my IT and technology teams are setting up virtual showrooms so that we're able to show the collection virtually. It seems
2: to me that time and time again, you know, after t- 2001, um, around 2008, and now you've made these rational decisions about your business that, that take the right steps to keep the business afloat just time and time again. Um, how... I mean, this is something that I think most business owners struggle with immensely. How do you make rational decisions in these moments of severe uncertainty or strain?
1: You know, I, I think there's a silver lining. I think that you have to stay positive, you know, you have to be optimistic, you have to be strategic, you have to make the tough choices of what's important and what's not important. You know, I mean, our call center is still up and running, they're just working from home because our consumer is the most important thing for the for the company right now. Um, we need to be where she wants, what she wants. So a lot of my decisions are practical, um, you know, and maybe if you've been in this industry as long as I've been. You just, you, your instinct, you know, entrepreneurs definitely have instinct and my instinct guides me on what is necessary and what can wait. So it's, it's the choices of how much you can do each day when, you know, or each week and, and how do you take an organization and it's, it's, I know it sounds a little crazy, but it's actually a good time for change because nothing is going back to the way it was. So, in you know, we all look in, and I think a lot of people we run businesses the way they are because that's the way they are. And the years that things get shook up, I mean, after nine eleven, it was moving the factory. In two thousand and eight, it was about um, uh, dropping a catalog and getting closer to the consumer. In in twenty twenty, it's going to be about being a leaner company more efficient with new structure that focuses on the brand because i know how important the brand has to be during these tough times and you know we were successful we were doing fine we were planning an awesome year and the year started out fine it's just you never know so as long as you have your health and as long as you have your passion and your commitment and your team and it is about the culture of a company we weather through it and i still love what i do It's just a little harder these last couple months.
2: Earlier, you said that um, part of your decision making process is to listen first and execute after. Can you give me an example of a time when that was particularly important to you?
1: We moved to Brooklyn. I mean, there was a lot of opinions of whether or not we should move here. I mean, and I listened to them. There was concerns about the employees that lived in New Jersey, the the mass transit to get here, the how could you leave your address? You know, this is – even the landlord of, of the building in Lafayette was like, What? And, uh, you know, so so I I listen to everything, but then you have to make the tough choice and you have to say, you know what, I'm going to make it work and you guys are going to be okay. And honestly, a crisis like this, it's like, thank God we made that change because if I had to pay lower Manhattan rent right now. It it could it could kill a company. So, in some ways, maybe you know you do have some vision as an entrepreneur that helps you instinctually be, you know, you're not just working in a big company where change takes longer. In in an entrepreneurial company, you have to be on the change. You have to be fast with the change. You know, my HR department jokes around a lot and says, you know, Dee, you're like a little speed boat. And, you know, you just have to make sure you hire people that don't get seasick because you keep changing the direction of the boat. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I'm like, I like that. I, I you know, I don't want to be be a big ship. I, I know how hard it is to change. So, you know, we're, we're still private. We're, we, I don't have, you know, right or wrong. I do not have a board. Okay. The, my board is my team and and I listen to them and we're going to make it work.
2: Jo Quinn, the CEO and co-founder of Lafayette 148 New York. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. talking with Deirdre, it's clear that part of her success is being a good partner and making a perfect partnership. But it wasn't a one-time act. She's also been applying those partnering skills in terms of every person she brings into the company. She found people at every stage who were willing to come along for the speedboat ride. I think part of why that worked is that she's willing to listen to a diversity of opinions and perspectives while steering that crazy boat. The other reason it worked is that she surrounds herself with people with a huge tolerance for change, from Mr. and Mrs. Sue to her employees to her factory and design partners. And that's a lesson that's particularly relevant at this moment in time when change feels inevitable and when we can't predict what tomorrow or next week or next month will hold for any business. Being flexible and having a partner or partners who fit your risk tolerance has never been wiser. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine, Since we're just starting out, we'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We'd also really appreciate it if you could recommend us to a friend or help recommend us to a lot of people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I know it seems like a small thing, but your thoughts really do count when it comes to making our show better and getting us more attention.
2: You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatink.com. Let us know what you think about finding dream business partners and who we should have on as a guest next. Our producer, the perfect pod partner, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine legorio Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.